Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Lessons from the world's top professors. Anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. And we're back on the untold history of sports in America. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Last time, we discussed the idea of amateurism versus professionalism in sports and framed it around the story of one of the great American athletes of all time, Jim Thorpe. Today, we'll be discussing sports in the 1920s and the legends that were made in that era, specifically baseball player Babe Ruth and boxer Jack Dempsey. What was happening in America at that time that enabled athletes to enter godlike mythology? Well, Matt has the answer. The 19th century certainly had its sports celebrities, uh, John L. Sullivan most notably, but really n- nothing like what Americans got in the 1920s. One of the, the giants of early American sports writing was a guy named Paul Gallico. And in 1931, Gallico was looking back on the 1920s, and he put it like this. Never before has there been a period when from the ranks of every sport arose some glamorous, unbeatable figure who shattered record after record, spread-eagled his field, and drew into the box office an unending stream of gold and silver. We have lived through a decade of deathless heroes. Deathless heroes. I, I, I like that phrase. Well, this decade of deathless heroes is due to a few things. And, and this is our outline for today. First, the historical setting was right. Uh, Americans in the 1920s, they were ready for sports heroes. So one might even argue that Americans needed sports heroes. And I will explain this. You know, second, there's the athletes themselves. There were some remarkable athletes in this era, athletes who would have been considered great and heroic in, in any era, really. And we will focus on two of them. And then finally, one of the reasons for their heroic status is that these athletes were sold to the American public. And that's the word I want to use, sold. Maybe they actually weren't 
all that heroic in reality, but they were packaged and presented to the American public as such. And this is something new in American sport history. So that's our battle plan today. And let's start with the historical context, as all good historians do. What was it about the 1920s that made Americans so receptive to the idea of athletes as heroes? Well, the first thing we need to note is that the 1920s were the decade that immediately followed World War I. The United States was directly involved in this war from a fighting standpoint from April of 1917 to November of 1918, so only 19 months. But World War I had a greater effect on sports in the United States than any other war in American history. More than the Civil War, more than World War II, more than Vietnam. And the effect was this. World War I made physical fitness a patriotic virtue. It made Americans think of sports and athleticism as a patriotic necessity. You know, we talk about how sports were becoming more and more a part of everyday life at the start of the 20th century. And then comes this great war. At the start, physical educators assured Americans that they were ready for war because they were a nation of athletes. During the war, the military used sport as a regular part of training camp. Soldiers used sports like boxing to prepare themselves for battle. And then after the war was over, Americans pointed to sports as one of the explanations for their victory. So it's a, it's a lengthy quote, but it fits so perfectly with what I'm talking about. I feel like I must use it. I give you our old friend, Walter Camp. Remember him, the, the father of college football? Well, here he is talking about why the United States was victorious in the Great War. He said this. Our boxing was made the basis of bayonet fighting, and our baseball arms were adept at learning to throw the grenade. The men who had gone into the opposing football line when the signal came went over the top and into the trenches with the same abandon. Those who had made a stand on the last five-yard line in the grim determination of the gridiron faced the scrimmage of war with the same do-or-die fortitude. Those who had raced on the cinder track and thrown their last efforts into the sprint at the finish were game when the pathway was a Flanders battlefield. The men who took the big chance on the motor track took the greater chances in the air with the same spirit. The men whose nerves had been tested with two men on, one out, and a run to tie and two to win stood smiling when the line was thin. That's great stuff from Halter Camp. Our sports are the reason we won this war. You know, sports and militarism and American patriotism, these three things have been closely linked in the American mind ever since. Those military flyovers you get when you go to a football game, it starts right here. I mean, not the flyovers, but the explicit connections between sport, militarism, and war. To relate this to the 1920s then, as the 1920s dawned, there were very few Americans questioning the value of sports anymore. You know, after all, without sports, where would we be? We'd all be speaking German. That, that was the idea. So the table was set for a national celebration of sport and the athletes who excelled in those sports. 
But here's another reason for the rise of sports and sport heroes in the 1920s. It's not just that the setting was ripe for American sports heroes. It's, it's that in the 1920s, the public wanted heroes. The public needed heroes. The public was thirsting for heroes. And to explain why, I need to tell you about something called mass culture. In 1922, there was an American intellectual named Walter Lippmann, and he argued that ordinary Americans were drowning in a sea of mass culture. Americans existed in one big homogenous mass culture, he said, in which it was difficult for the individual to truly stand out. Americans were all wearing the same clothes to work. They were all eating the same cereal for breakfast. They were all driving the same car. In the early 1920s, the decade we're talking about, two out of every three cars on the road were Model Ts, and they were all black. Henry Ford used to say you could get the Model T in any color you want as long as it's black. And I can briefly relate this to sports. After big sporting events like a college football game, it took people in the crowd an hour to find their individual car as every car in the parking lot was a black Model T. So Americans were all consuming the same products. Everyone was the same that way. But more than this, Walter Lippmann argued that American life had become thoroughly standardized and bureaucratized. Americans could no longer get ahead in the job place and truly distinguish themselves. Americans were stuck in their jobs. They were faceless blue-collar workers on assembly lines or faceless white-collar workers pushing papers in massive corporate impersonal offices. Everyone was the same. Everyone was average. No one ever has the opportunity to do a noble or heroic act. If you've ever read the book or seen the movie Fight Club, it's the exact same idea. The modern, unexciting corporate world, it makes real success and the truly heroic act elusive. Now, in Fight Club, the protagonist takes up underground bare-knuckle boxing to combat this problem, to, to bring a, a rush of energy and excitement into his life. He needs to taste blood to feel alive. Well, in the 1920s, Americans didn't turn to underground boxing. Instead, what they do is this. They begin living out imaginative and vicarious lives through the exciting exploits of others. Some Americans went to the movies, and they lived vicariously through the fictitious characters on the screen. But others found meaning in the exploits of real-life athletes playing sports. It's in the context of this standardized, faceless, you know, anti-individualistic mass culture that great athletes became what one historian calls compensatory sports heroes. And I, I like that phrase as well, compensatory sports heroes. The idea here is that athletes become larger than life figures because they compensate for the lack of success and excitement in the lives of the general public. This is why we care so much about sports today, one could argue. We invest as much emotion in the games played by others as we do to the events in our own lives, and that's because we sense that we have no real chance for heroic greatness in our lives. Our lives are comfortable and boring, 
so we live vicariously through sports. I don't know. What, what do you think? It's a pretty depressing thought, actually. But do you think there's any truth in this? You know, I'm not asking you to engage in deep, critical self-analysis here. That can be dangerous. But do you think there's something to this theory? Well, those are the theories. A world war leads to a national celebration of sport and then the bland morass of mass culture. It causes Americans to yearn for moments of heroic greatness. And then come the athletes who do the things that we consider heroic. There was Bobby Jones, the golfer, and Big Bill Tilden, the tennis star. All-time greats, heroes to the American public, both of them. But, well, golf and tennis are all fine and good. But as you know, the national pastime was baseball. And the game of baseball had a compensatory sports hero of Ruthian magnitude. And not so coincidentally, his name was Babe Ruth. In a nutshell, here is the meaning of Babe Ruth. For Americans in the 1920s, Babe Ruth was living proof that the lone individual could still rise from humble beginnings to secure fame and fortune. Babe Ruth was the American dream. Babe Ruth was a wild and unruly street kid from Baltimore who learned to play baseball in reform school, where he lived for over a decade. And then he entered Major League Baseball as a pitcher, actually. He was a great pitcher who rose to prominence with the Boston Red Sox. And then Babe Ruth surprised the baseball world when he started playing in the outfield on his non-pitching days. And in 1919, Babe Ruth hit 29 home runs, which was two more than the existing major league record. That offseason, the owner of the Red Sox, he needed some money to fund a Broadway play of his. So he sold Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees for $125,000. Here's my analysis. Huge mistake. Huge mistake, Red Sox fans. That You don't get those insights uh, just, just anywhere. Well, though this was a colossal error for the Red Sox, clearly, it was a stroke of luck for the Yankees in Major League Baseball. Because Babe Ruth was now in the cultural capital of the United States, New York City. And so when he starts to perform his remarkable athletic feats, he's smack dab in the middle of the nation's media capital. Playing for the New York Yankees that next year in 1920, Babe Ruth hit a stunning total of 54 home runs. Only one other team in baseball hit that many home runs that year. So this was unprecedented power. I mean, if someone did this today, we would automatically think they were on steroids. So what Babe Ruth did is almost superhuman. And the next year, 1921, he hit 59 home runs. His 1921 season, it gets my vote for the greatest year a player ever had in baseball history. If you have time and care about such things, check out the stats. But the public responded to Ruth's awesome feats with overwhelming enthusiasm. Yankee attendance, it soared at home. It soared on the road. Spectators were riveted by Babe Ruth and his mighty swings. Americans were Babe Ruth and home run crazy. But what is it about the home run that intoxicates the American sports fan? You know, I'm a little wary of overthinking this stuff. 
But let me put the home run in the context of this lecture and suggest this. Babe Ruth's towering home runs represented a dramatic finality. They were a a total clearing of the bases with one mighty swat. And so what Babe Ruth was doing on the baseball diamond was taking matters into his own hands. Right? Why get on base and hope someone else hits you home? Babe Ruth did it all by himself. And so what Ruth was doing in baseball was what many Americans felt they could no longer do in their own lives, succeed spectacularly on their own. And so Americans, they latched on to Babe Ruth. They idolized him. Babe Ruth was their great compensatory sports hero. But now I need to complicate this because actually Ruth was not doing this all by himself. And though there's another athlete I still want to talk about, let's talk about how athletes like Babe Ruth were sold to the American public. After the break, sports writers and promoters around the country turn American sports stars into legends. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Babe Ruth and the other athletes of the 1920s benefited from a number of changes in the way that sports were being promoted. The 1920s, this was the dawn of the era of radio. You could now hear the deeds of these athletes as they were actually happening. You could hear the crack of the bat in Yankee Stadium on your radio. This was the era of newsreels at the moving picture shows, where Americans could see these athletes performing their tremendous feats. You live in Iowa, but now you go to your movie house and you can see Babe Ruth. 
And the old-fashioned newspaper was important as well, especially with the rise of a new generation of sports writers in something that's known as gee whiz sports journalism. The 1920s were the golden years of sports writing uh, also. Fabulous writers like Ring Lardner and, and Grantland Rice. These sports writers did not write about mortal men. They wrote about gods. They, they created images of athletes that often went way beyond the athletes' actual accomplishments. You know, they described athletes as, as, as supernatural forces. For example, there was a, a University of Illinois football player, Red Grange. Red Grange is a pretty cool name already, but even cooler was the nickname given to him by a Chicago sports writer, the Galloping Ghost of the Gridiron. Sports writers in the 1920s, they understood that, that building up the image of athletes to do this was to secure enjoyable and lucrative employment for themselves. They knew that the public wanted their heroes. And so with great literary flourish, they gave the public what they wanted. They gave them larger-than-life figures. Gee whiz sports writing, as in gee whiz, ain't they great? But finally, also important was the rise of the professional promoter, the sports agent. These agents sold these athletes to the public. The 1920s was the decade when advertising becomes a national phenomenon in American history, when, when advertising agents are crafting images of products, and trying to sell these products to the public, um, you know, cars, cigarettes, cleaning products, whatever. And just as advertising agents tried to sell items to the public by, by packaging and promoting them, sports agents packaged their athletes as commodities to be sold as well. And so the man who might be as responsible for the legend of Babe Ruth as Babe Ruth is a guy named Christy Walsh. Christy Walsh was Babe Ruth's agent, his promoter. He's the first real sports agent, and he cultivated a grand public image for Ruth. You know, in newspapers all over the country, there were articles from Babe Ruth describing each of his home runs the day after he hit him. But Babe Ruth didn't write these. Christy Walsh did. It was Christy Walsh who spread the stories that Babe Ruth had gone into a hospital, promised a dying child he would hit a home run, and then do just that. There's actually no evidence to suggest that these stories are true. And it was Walsh who masterminded Babe Ruth as an advertising icon. Babe Ruth sold fishing equipment, alligator shoes, three types of automobiles, baseball gears, cigarettes, you name it. Babe Ruth sold Americans all these things, but it was Christy Walsh who sold us Babe Ruth. This is when that starts. So when we have a conversation about the modern athlete, I think it's a conversation that really starts with Babe Ruth. He was an athlete, a showman, a media phenomenon, and an advertising pitchman. The other great compensatory sports hero of the 1920s was a prize fighter, Jack Dempsey. And he also was sold to the American public. Boxing became less popular among white Americans in 1910 with the victory of Jack Johnson over Jim Jeffries. We talked about that. But then Jack Johnson lost and the color line was redrawn. And then World War I rekindled interest in the sport. 
But boxing needed a new superstar if it was ever going to recapture the, the fancy of the average American sports fan. And so enter Tex Rickard. Remember him? Tex Rickard was the man who had promoted the Johnson-Jeffries fight of 1910. And now he was looking for a new boxing hero, but a white boxing hero. And Rickard found his guy in an unknown fighter from Colorado named Jack Dempsey. Dempsey wasn't all that big. He was six foot, 187 pounds, and he wasn't all that skillful of a boxer, actually. I mean, nowhere near the skill of Jack Johnson. But Jack Dempsey was ferocious, a a real brawler who constantly charged forward and swung with all his might. Jack Dempsey was the most offensive-minded heavyweight champion until a guy named Mike Tyson. And Dempsey had been little more than a a Western saloon fighter. You know, he kind of lived the life of a hobo, traveling the Western towns, fighting for a few dollars. But in 1919, Tex Rickard got hold of him, and he gave Jack Dempsey the chance to fight the champion, Jess Willard. Willard was a massive six-foot-six boxer. He was the guy who had defeated Jack Johnson. Well, Jack Dempsey savaged Willard. He knocked Willard down five times in the first round. And at the end of the third round, Willard's face was swollen to twice its normal size. And Jess Willard just quit. Tex Rickard billed Dempsey as Jack the Giant Killer. You know, he promoted Dempsey as the little guy, the average guy, the guy who had just been given that one opportunity and succeeded gloriously. Just like Babe Ruth, you know, he lived the rags to riches story and embodied the American dream. And Tex Rickard carefully crafted Jack Dempsey's image, and he constructed an easy-to-understand narrative around all of Dempsey's fights. Rickard sold Jack Dempsey's fights to the public, like selling a Model T or breakfast cereal. You know, for example, in 1921, Dempsey fought Georges Carpentier of France. And in Rickard's hand, the fight was billed as European elegance versus raw American strength. 80,000 spectators bought into this, and they came to a temporary arena in Jersey City. And this was boxing's first million-dollar gate, a million dollars in ticket sales. And the crowd saw Jack Dempsey overwhelm Carpentier, knocking him out in the fourth round. Dempsey's next fight was against an unknown Argentinian named Louis Furpo. Louis Furpo had a day job. He, he washed bottles in a Buenos Aires pharmacy. But in the promotional hands of Tex Rickard, Furpo was billed as the wild bull of the Pampas, uh, the, the Pampas being the Argentinian prairie. And this is a name that sounds a lot cooler than the Buenos Aires bottle washer. Tex Rickard billed this fight as North American versus South American. And this was a legendary fight. It was four minutes of nonstop action. In the first round, Dempsey knocked down Furpo seven times. And in that same round, Furpo got up from one of those seven knockdowns and blasted a right cross to Dempsey's jaw that sent Jack Dempsey through the ropes and totally out of the ring. Reporters hoisted Dempsey back into the ring, and in the next round, the second, swinging both fists wildly, the champ knocked Furpo out. And by now, the public was in love with Dempsey's all-or-nothing style, you know, pure action, knockouts or getting knocked out of the ring. 
A cultural historian might suggest that what we have here are Americans thirsting for excitement, and Jack Dempsey is giving it to them. If you want proof that Americans love Dempsey and his all-or-nothing style, you only need to know that he lost his next two fights, and Americans loved him even more. Dempsey's next two fights were both against Gene Tunney. Gene Tunney was unlike most professional boxers. He, he read books. He, he played chess. He wrote poetry. He actually lectured on Shakespeare at a local college. So Tex Rickard promoted the fight as the wild, savage Dempsey against the enlightened and scientific Gene Tunney. And we've actually seen this fight before in this course. You might remember the John L. Sullivan-James Corbett bout, a fight where many Americans, they wanted the more scientific and disciplined and educated Jim Corbett to win. But not now. Now they wanted the savage brawler, the man who swung with all his might, the, the, the more thrilling fighter. You know, this was the spirit of the times. The first time they fought was in 1926 in Philadelphia where 120,000 fans came, and they were shocked when the defensive-minded Tunney, he defeated Dempsey on points. He just avoided Dempsey's wild blows. But boxing fans criticized Tunney for his, his tactical, boring strategy. The rematch took place in Chicago the next year, 1927. And it was here that maybe the most famous moment in boxing history occurred. In front of 150,000 spectators, 150,000, and 50 million people listening to NBC radio, the first six rounds were uneventful. Then in the seventh round, Dempsey landed a series of blows that knocked Gene Tunney to the canvas. And as the referee prepared to count to 10, he told Dempsey to go to a neutral corner. This was a brand new rule in boxing, and both fighters had agreed to abide by this rule before the bout. Before the referee would begin counting, the other fighter had to retreat to a neutral corner. But Dempsey ignored the command. He instinctively and aggressively hovered over Tenny. And by the time the referee got Dempsey to back off into the corner, five seconds had gone by. The referee then began to count to 10, and he was at 9 when Gene Tunney pulled himself up. So Tunney was down for at least 15 seconds, and what has been known forever since as the long count, it cost Jack Dempsey the title. Tunney made it through the seventh round, and then he boxed well enough over the final three rounds to win again in points. But in defeat, Dempsey became even more popular. He was the type of athlete the public wanted. He was the brawler who relied upon quick, physical solutions, just like Babe Ruth hitting a home run. Sure, he had made a mistake, but we all make mistakes. And at least his mistake was committed in a rush of enthusiasm and excitement. That was the idea. Dempsey retired after this bout, and Gene Tunney's future fights, they were commercial flops a suggestion that maybe it was Jack Dempsey and not boxing that was popular in the 1920s. That's all for now. Next time on the Untold History of Sports in America, presented by One Day University, 
The story of Mildred Didrikson. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.